read the passage that Matthew will be preaching on in just a few moments, Jonah chapter 1, and let's read the whole chapter together. Jonah chapter 1 and beginning in verse 1 reads, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord heard a, hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come Let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him. Into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Amen. In even the slightest direction. And so any movement at this speed off course will result in an 85 mile per hour crash into an ice wall that will then send you crashing down the rest of the track. So one movement off course will end in the track punishing you, as Reuben explained the event, resulting in your failure to achieve victory. And in life, as the people of God, we also have 
a track or a course, a path to follow. And this is a track that's designed by the Lord and made known to us through his Holy Spirit. And yet when we sin, we make movements that direct us off course. And sin has consequence. There are implications for going off course that can be dangerous and painful. But these consequences are often modes of the Lord's discipline so that we can be corrected and put back on the correct course. And Jonah is a narrative that depicts this process quite well. In following the prophet of the Lord, it shows that his sin leads to the storm of the Lord's discipline. And yet through this, there's a solution. One that redirects his course and leads to the work of the kingdom being done. Before we look at Jonah chapter 1 this morning, though, let me set the stage for this book that we'll be looking at for the next couple weeks. Jonah is a prophet that's mentioned in both 2 Kings and Ecclesiastes, and he's performing his ministry during the time that Jeroboam II is reigning in Israel. And so ironically, he's also born near Nazareth, which is significant as this book plays in the contradiction between Jonah and Christ. And so Jonah is prophesying to Israel during a post-Babylonian exile time. It's during a time where the people of God are living surrounded by enemies, with the Syrians being a looming threat from their capital city of Nineveh to the east. And so it's in this climate of hostility, with some fear towards neighboring empires, but a relative time of peace under Jeroboam II that Jonah takes place. And as we heard read earlier, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah in chapter 1. Here we see that the patterns of the disobedient man emerge and there is a response from a holy God. It's in this book that we see that sin hinders us from doing the work of the kingdom. But in our sin, the Lord's discipline will return us to his will. Often, it's through the discipline of the Lord that we recognize the realities of our wrongdoing and are reoriented towards what is right. And Jonah chapter 1 demonstrates this in the sin of the prophet in verses 1 through 3, the storm of the Lord's discipline in verses 4 through 10, and a solution presented for Jonah in 11 through 17. So those are the three points that we'll have tonight. The sin, the storm of the Lord's discipline, solution promised. And so first, let's look at the sin of the passage. The first first three verses of the book throw us into the rebellion of Jonah as the disobedient man. Let's look again at verses 1 through 3. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for your evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. See, Jonah's rebellion occurs already in the first three verses of the book. Called by the Lord to preach the coming judgment of Nineveh, he turns and runs the opposite way to Tarshish. And in these verses, Jonah's goal is expressed twice. He's running with the purpose of going away from the presence of the Lord. And to us this evening, 
we might internally already be considering the foolishness of that sentiment. But consider who Jonah is. Jonah is a prophet of the Lord. Jonah is a member of the people of God. He's a Jew. And he's living in accordance with God so much that God has already given him a task of preaching. It's likely that Jonah was trained in the school of prophets. He's endowed with the job of proclaiming the name of the Lord to Israel already. He's the successor of Elijah and Elisha. And we see in scripture that he's already been a messenger of God. 2 Kings 14 says he, that's Jeroboam II, restored the border of Israel from Rebel Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from gath Hefer. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel was very bitter, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So we see that earlier in his ministry, Jonah preached the salvation of the Lord to Israel through the king Jeroboam II. The name Jonah literally means dove, and it's a fitting name for his earlier ministry. He's securing the people of Israel with the good assurance that they will be restored through their king, giving them hope in the peace of the Lord. So hear this. Jonah is a man used by God before this book to declare the restoration of the Lord and his peace for all Israel. He has spoken with God. He's been God's voice, peace, and messenger. He's been a bringer of good news and a witness to the goodness of the restoration of the Lord. He's been on the front lines of seeing the grace of God work in the lives of others. And so you see, Jonah is like you and me. Where we might initially think that running from the presence of the Lord is foolishness, we must understand that Jonah is not a simple disobedient runner or a faithless man. And so needless to say, if the disobedience seen in this chapter is able to rise up in Jonah, then it is surely able to rise up in us. And so we must listen closely to what the Lord has for us in his example. As believers in faith, yet still prone to our wayward hearts. And so in verses 1 to 3, Jonah receives the direction of the Lord to go to Nineveh. And while he's already been called to give good news to the people of Israel, now the call is different. He's being directed to go to the enemy, to Nineveh. God often tasks his believers with doing things of great difficulty. In Genesis, he calls Abraham to leave Ur and go to a strange land. And in Exodus, he calls Moses, and he calls him to go be a servant to lead his people into the desert, back to Canaan. And now in Jonah, he's calling his prophet to call against a wicked city that is the enemy. The Lord calls his people to do his will, both for their own growth and for the advancement of his kingdom. And yet now, Jonah says no. Jonah runs the opposite direction. Instead of going east to Nineveh, he goes west to Joppa to take a ship as far from Nineveh as he possibly can go. And this is the reality of sin in the heart of a person. All sin is an effort to remove the Lord's kingship from over us. 
it seeks to usurp the throne of God and throw off the direction that he has given. And the danger of sin is this, that we, like Jonah, internally believe that we can sin without consequence. We believe that we can do what the Lord has told us not to do or to not do what he has told us to do. But sin has a great price. Jonah pays the fare for his journey. And in doing so, he seals the cost for his unfaithfulness. Galatians 5 says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Clearly, our lives are surrounded by, corrupted by, and constantly in contact with sin. But Paul writes that those who live as defined by their sin, who make patterns of life that are invaded by sin, will not inherit the kingdom of God. Failing to live in harmony with the Spirit and attempting to remove yourself from the presence of God will hinder the kingdom of God. Running from the presence of God means that you are running from holiness in your life. So every single time that we sin, we are attempting to remove ourselves from the presence of God like Jonah because we do not inherit the kingdom of God when we are marked by our sin. And this is because it is only in the presence of God that we are made holy. It's only through the work of Christ and the surrender of ourselves to his saving grace and refining fire that we are made new in the last Adam, the Savior, the one who became sin so that we might be made known by his righteousness. It's only in the presence of our holy God that we are made holy. And so in all that you do, you either help or hinder the kingdom of God. You are either in his presence or running away from his presence. The disobedient man hinders the kingdom of God by removing himself from the presence of God. And what greater rejection of God is this than for us to be in his presence and then turn our back on his face. To be before the throne of God and say in your heart that it is no longer your delight. To behold the greatness of the glory of the Almighty God of heaven and then to reject its wonder. See, how dare we in our sin do this? We have been in the presence of God, glorifying his name, filled with his spirit, and then we in our sin declare that his majesty is not enough for us. That's the awful reality of choosing to run from the presence of God we walk away from the throne room of heaven, deciding that creation has more for us than the creator. So consider the ridiculous horror of our apostasy before God. Every fraction of our straying eyes pulls us away from truly ascribing glory to the kingdom of God because we have shackled ourselves to the kingdoms of man. And as a result of this, we lose our sense of mission. 
Jonah, in his sin, attempts to remove himself from the presence of God. And because his eyes are no longer centered on the kingdom work before him, he refuses the mission of God. Our God is missional. He desires to lavish grace upon the nations and turn the souls of men and women back to himself. And we, too, should have that same desire. We should delight in the work that is to be done in turning eyes back to the kingdom of God so that he might receive all praise and glory. And yet sin corrodes and ruins our vision. It redirects our gaze and hinders our relationship from the Lord. And so in our sin, we become like Jonah, running from the presence of God, lost without a sense of mission for the good news of the gospel, and fleeing to a place that will offer no salvation. And yet while verses 1 through 3 reveal the sin of the disobedient prophet, verses 4 to 10 show the futility of these efforts in the storm. So the second section of this passage reveals this, that when God's people attempt to run from his presence, he brings about divine discipline. Let's read verses four to six again. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. When God's people attempt to run from his presence, he brings about divine discipline. Jonah's attempts to remove himself from the presence of God only last for a mere three verses because the power of God crashes down in the form of a storm in verse 4. Look at the power of the Lord in the storm. He hurls it into the waters, bringing about a storm so fierce that the ship that they are in nearly breaks, so much so that seasoned sailors, men who made a very living upon sailing upon the Mediterranean Sea, are afraid. They're terrified to the point of crying out to their gods for salvation. And so we can imagine the immensity of this storm. And yet, when the captain looks for Jonah... He's nowhere to be seen. He's fast asleep. And whereas the sailors are making themselves busy by attempting to save themselves from the might of the storm and calling out to their gods, Jonah is sleeping. So the irony, the contradiction between the sailors and between Jonah is jarring. Yet again, this is revealing about the nature of sin. Sin leads to the rising wrath of God against what is wrong, but when we sin, we often have a false sense of relief. Sin presents itself as attractive, as easy. It promises good things that the Lord provides, such as life and peace and salvation. But it truly leads to death and conflict and damnation. Sin that erodes at the bottom of our soul slowly is not easily recognizable. And so Jonah reaches the ship and finds an empty peace in his slumber. His fast sleep brings to question if he's simply trusting the Lord to protect him or negligent to the realities around him, 
But regardless, his sleep is telling of his hardened heart towards the calling that God has given him. And what's scary is that this is often us. We rely too heavily on the bottomless grace of our Savior to come to real terms with our sin. We excuse our complacency and our lack of spiritual fervor by saying that we are on good terms with God despite the subtle and constant sins in our life. We far too easily forget to listen to the will of God and therefore walk away from his presence because we are too focused on our own will for the present. And so just because you are resting well, simply because things are looking up for you and they're going well, does not mean that you are living in the righteousness of God and pursuing your unity with him. It's in times like these that sometimes you must especially consider if there is a storm brewing beneath the boat. If you have sinned against the Lord by removing him from his rightful lordship over your heart. And C.S. Lewis writes about this in The Problem of Pain, saying, The human spirit will not even begin to try to surrender self-will as long as all seems to be well with it. Now, error and sin both have this property, that the deeper they are, the less their victim suspects their existence. They are masked evil. Pain is unmasked, unmistakable evil. Every man knows that something is wrong when he's being hurt. You see, we attempt to cover our sin with the assurance that all is well. But then, the Lord will reveal to us where we have fallen. The nature of a good and yet wrathful God is that when his people have walked away from his presence, he will bring them back to himself through the discipline of a father. See in verses 8 through 10, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell upon Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. These verses tell us much about the discipline of the Lord. When his people run from him, he will re-arrest their attention, despite their sinful inclination to shrug away his calling. The Lord's will will be accomplished. He had given Jonah a task, and then when Jonah and then he will bring about Jonah to be his messenger again when Jonah sins. And so he brings a mighty storm upon the waters, and then when Jonah does not confess to his sin before the sailors, the Lord providentially acts in the casting of lots, causing them to fall upon Jonah. It's only after this point that Jonah is willing to admit to his sin. The Lord pursues his people in their sin in order to draw them back to himself. But in order for them to turn back, they must be refined purged of the sin that tainted them. To re-engage with the holiness of God, you have to shed that which is unholy. And the way that the Lord does this is through divine discipline. 
Hebrews 12 says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for the discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. See, the depths of divine discipline are fatherly love. The Lord, as our Father, makes us undergo reproof because he desires for us to be holy, for us to be fruitful with righteousness, and for us to be legitimate sons and daughters in our reflection of him. And now, I wouldn't be too sure of this, but I think that it's similar to every parent's nightmare of having their child misbehave in public. All the eyes of the onlookers are staring at you, the parent of the screaming child in the aisle of the grocery store or in the pew of the church. And we know what they're thinking. I bet that person doesn't discipline their child at all. That little girl or boy probably gets whatever they want. And they're the terror of the neighborhood too. A child's behavior reflects the discipline and love of their parent. It's only through discipline that a child learns what is right and wrong, what is acceptable and inappropriate, what is tolerable and intolerable. So the very role of parenthood was created by God to reflect the way that we relate to him. And so in the same way, the Heavenly Father must discipline his children so that they are accurate reflections of his holiness. In our discipline as children of God, we become more like God. In fact, it would be utterly unloving for our Heavenly Father to not discipline us because it would not teach us to become more like himself and it would separate us further from his presence marked by our unrighteousness and failure to seek the light. And so in Jonah 1, 4 through 10, the discipline of the Lord falls on his wayward child. His child that is resting peacefully in his misbehavior But the Lord uses circumstances such as the storm and the lots in order to bring divine discipline upon the prophet. And it's only through this that Jonah is able to confess that he is running from the presence of the Lord and does deserve punishment. He has incurred the wrath of God through his obedience to the calling of the Lord. He is off mission and he must be redirected because of the deliberate sin and hindrance that he has caused to the kingdom of God. And so while verses 1 through 3 show the issue of sin that Jonah is being off mission and verses 4 to 10 show the storm of the Lord's discipline, verses 11 to 17 promise a solution. Read with me again in verses 11 to 17. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not 
perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. So in the last verses of our text this evening, we see that Jonah is forced to face the consequences of his sin, leading to him being thrown off of the boat and into the sea. And when Jonah is brought to light and subjected to the discipline of the Lord, the storm ceases. See, the practice of confession is necessary for the resolution of our unholiness before God. When we have turned away from the Lord in sin, we must repent to the Lord. Notice what the text says. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Jonah bears the weight of his decision to flee from the Lord. The practice of confession admits ownership of our sin and our need for the Lord to be reoriented to his holiness. And what Jonah also realizes in these verses is that he has not only brought the wrath of God upon himself, but also on the mariners who were in the boat with him. See, sin has consequences that not only befall the sinner, but also others. And that's the nature of sin. It's pervasive, spreading. It's like a bacteria that begins to multiply and take root in many different places. Our inclination often is to perceive our sin as only affecting ourselves. And this makes sense because sin is the action of placing ourselves and our own priorities before God. But the results of sin often compromise others. It's like Achan in Joshua 7 who had stolen articles from the Canaanite nations and hid them under his tent rather than destroying them as the Lord had commanded. And because of his sin, the Israelites suffered a crippling loss to the Canaanite nations and then he and his family were stoned and burned. Because of one man's sin, many men and his family died in painful and gruesome ways. Sin has consequences. It is the opposite of the actions of the Lord. It is not good. It's not victorious or beautiful. It will lead to a fragmentation of our own relationship with the Lord and also with others. The sailors are subjected to the wrathful storm of the Lord because of Jonah's lack of concern for the consequences of his disobedience. See, the pride of sin stands in the way of our missional concern and love for others. When we are not focused on the gospel, we lose sight of a godly love for others. But now, in contrast to this, is the attitude of the sailors, unbelievers. They're full of compassion for Jonah. They desire to help him. And so ironically, they have the correct disposition of the heart. Even though they're not members of the people of God, they cry out to the Lord in their moment of despair. And so, in verses 11 to 17, with the acknowledgement of Jonah's sin and his submission to the discipline of the Lord, Jonah is thrown into the sea, immediately calming the storm. And while Jonah is sinking, the men on the boat fear the Lord exceedingly. See this, God is mighty in that despite the sinful, poor choices of man, he uses all circumstances for the advancement of his kingdom. 
The book of Jonah is concerned with the salvation of wayward, lost souls. And through Jonah's sin and the Lord's discipline of him, the Lord brings the sailors to worship him. Isaiah 55 proclaims this, saying, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, it shall not, shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Our God moves in powerful and mysterious ways. He will always bring about all things for his own glory. Our God is so mighty that while he works to bring Jonah back to obedience to the calling that he has been given, he is in the same moment working in the hearts of the sailors so that his name might be glorified in them. Our God will advance his kingdom regardless of our sin and regardless of our righteousness. His victory is sure. It will be one, and we will delight in it when we are focused on his holiness and majesty by doing his kingdom work, unlike Jonah. And so verse 17 closes with hope for those of us who know the story of Scripture. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. See, God does not abandon Jonah, filled with rage towards his rejection, He doesn't lower himself to the haughty frustration of man and let Jonah just sink to the bottom of the sea. He sends a whale to swallow Jonah, providing hope at the end of a chapter for the return of his messenger. And we know that this is similar to our Savior also. Our Savior who, while not having sin, chose to become sin and take it into the darkness below. Christ the sent messenger from God who bore sin for three days and three nights in the darkness of the tomb. And so now verse 17 leaves us with hope for the rest of the book. The messenger of God will arise in victory, preaching the good news and proclaiming the majesty and the lordship of the Lord. And so while we are like Jonah, trapped in our constant return to sinfulness, where we abandon the presence of the Lord, we have a savior who entered into the depths of death for us, taking the wrath of the Lord into darkness so that we do not have to, so that he might rise again and proclaim the majesty of our God. So in closing, John Piper writes that the ultimate good of the gospel is seeing and savoring the beauty and value of God. God's wrath and our sin obstruct that vision and that pleasure. You can't see and savor God as supremely satisfying while you are full of rebellion against him and he is full of wrath against you. The removal of this wrath and this rebellion is what the gospel is for. The ultimate aim of the gospel is the display of God's glory and the removal of every obstacle to our seeing it and savoring it as our highest treasure. And this is the message that we begin to see in Jonah 1. The prophet displays the heart of sin against the Lord, that being a heart that seeks to run from his presence. And sin hinders us from being mindful of the mission of the Lord. When this occurs, the storm of God's discipline is necessary to wake us up from our wayward stupor. We have faith, however, that as we confess our sin and submit to the discipline of our good Father, he will advance his kingdom. 
And so in light of Jonah 1, I leave you with two things. First, are you living in harmony with the Holy Spirit? Thomas Akempis writes, there is no worse enemy, no one more troublesome to the soul than you are to yourself if you are not in harmony with the Spirit. The habits of our sinfulness distract and block us from remaining satisfied in the glory of our King. We find false relief in our slumber in the boat. And while the storm of implications are raging around us, we fail to seek his face and listen to his call when we live in sin. It subtly erodes at the walls of our heart and leads us down paths of disobedience. Living in harmony with the Spirit requires listening to his call, obeying in faith, despite the hardship of what that call might be. So test today whether you are following the Lord by examining if you are living missionally, if you have a heart for the lost as the Lord does, and if you're taking your ultimate joy in the Father. And second, when we realize that we have fallen short, which we as humans will always do, we must do two things. We must submit to the, di- submit to the divine discipline of our Heavenly Father, and we have to take hope that we do have a good Father that does redeem us. It's in him that all things will lead to victory. We are sinners who must continually be corrected from our straying path. We must be corrected down the path of the Olympic loser as we crash down to the finish line. But in this, we know that our unrighteousness is paid for by the blood of the Lamb. We can take heart in knowing that we have been granted victory by Christ. And while we battle against our flesh, we look with certainty that one day Christ will reign and we will no longer have to battle against our sinful inclinations. Because of this, abide in the presence of the Lord. Let him fill you and be joined to him through the Spirit, not like Jonah, but as Christ, who did the will of his Father in order that the Lord might be praised. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for sending your Son, your messenger, who took on sin so that we might not have to be known by our sin, but we are known by your righteousness. So Christ, I pray that we would abide in you, that we would live in harmony of your Spirit, that we would understand that we are so often like Jonah and run from your presence. But Lord, we acknowledge that you are a good Father who redirects us and brings us back into our attention on you. And so I pray that that would be true of us now, that we would have attention on the throne of glory and that we would proclaim your majesty to the nations. In your name I pray, amen.